Welcome to Picture Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty members of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PICT community. Our goal is to present you with a variety of voices from across the spectrum of the humanities, the arts, and critical creative thinking. My name is David Silim Sayers, and in this episode, it is my great pleasure to welcome Michelle Corsi and Jessica Padilla, professional makeup artists based in New York City. Both Michelle and Jessica can look back on quite awe-inspiring careers in the world of makeup, ranging from fashion magazines to runway shows and popular TV programs. But what unites them, perhaps more than anything else, is a passion for the history and social significance of makeup. In fall 2018, Jessica and Michelle co-taught the two-day picked workshop, Makeup Through the Decades, in which they gave applied demonstrations of vintage makeup styles while discussing the history of makeup in the first half of the 20th century. Jessica, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having us. It's a, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to have you guys on the show. It's a, it's a shame that we haven't been able to see each other in person for so long. Uh. But yeah, <laughs> let me start. Let me just start off with a general question uh, concerning the purpose of makeup, because I think that we mostly associate makeup with the cultivation of some notion of beauty. But makeup has historically served many other purposes as well, uh, for instance, in religious rituals or as war paint. And so what I wanted to ask was, if it is not the creation of beauty, is there some kind of more fundamental purpose that all forms of makeup have in common? Um, can I go, Jess? Yeah, you go first and then I'll, I'll add to it. <laughs> um, I think when I was doing my very brief research for this, um, I think it always just came down to wealth, power, status, and sex or sexuality um, is really what it came down to. And also how others perceive you and the image you're trying to present to the world, um, whether you're trying to seduce someone or intimidate someone or show how powerful you are, that's really the kind of the through line of makeup. Or even if you chose not to wear makeup um, or were not allowed to wear makeup, it all came back to being perceived in a certain way or how God saw you or something along those lines. Yeah, I was I was sort of doing some <laughs> some preliminary re-research again last night too. And I I think for me, the the pull and the power of makeup is, is sort of about the power of transformation. And I think that, you know, beyond the practical uses, because there were there were very like practical uses in the past where, you know, it was for camouflage from your enemies or predators, or like in Egypt, it was the eye coal that actually worked against preventing eye infection um, or it was like sun protection, but unfortunately it also caused, um, there was some lead in it. So it also caused blindness, um, but there were like lots of practical purposes for it. But then you have this other side where it's more of a psychological thing where it's ceremony and tradition and, you know, passing, um, passing habits down from generation to generation, you know, moms that passed it to daughters that passed it to their daughters. And I think there's something about the psychology of makeup that runs beyond beauty. You know, if you've ever worked, Michelle and I both worked in retail at one point in our lives. And if you've ever been a retail makeup artist, you know that women have a deep, deep psychological connection to color and the way makeup makes them feel. And, you know, um, you had mentioned at one point like war paint and that makeup was used for that. And I've, I've always sort of felt like makeup was putting on of an armor and sort of like a protection or, you know, the way that I would like the world to see me. And I feel like that's sort of universal. I don't think I'm the only one that sometimes uses makeup as a, 
as a tool of like armor to set yeah. myself to get ready, you know? Absolutely. So it, you've been you've been touching on uh, uh, some, I think, uh, something very fundamental uh, about the way that makeup informs uh, uh, sort of others' perception of us, and and the way that we the way that we want to transform ourselves, or the way that we want to uh, the way that we want to appear to others, and that's not limited to uh, projecting a, a sense of uh, beauty. And yeah, it's, you, it's yeah. not necessarily just about looking pretty or good. It's much deeper than that, and more powerful than that, frankly. Yeah, and and you have also you have also mentioned, and, and that sort of neatly brings me to my next question: that makeup has been around for a very very long time. It has literally, I don't know if makeup is as old as clothing, but it has literally <laughs> been with us throughout the ages. And uh, there there are extant prehistoric makeup products that people have dated back many millennia. So the question that I wanted to ask you, since you've already touched on contexts such as Egypt. Uh, was what was makeup really like before modern times, before the 20th century? Can you share some insights to help us imagine the, the pre-modern world of makeup? Michelle, do you want to go first or do you want me to <laughs> jump in? Go for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that makeup in the beginning, I mean, there were, there was some beliefs that like maybe even as early as like prehistoric times, you know, they were using makeup for camouflage or body paint or some sort of, you know, ochre. Um, it was all made of natural things. I mean, you had nuts and minerals and flowers and bugs and fish scales and beetles and, um, you know, they would grind it up and mix it with animal fat or vegetable oil or resin or wax. I mean, it was very rudimentary but in some ways like some things really haven't changed that much like the eye coal that they make in the Middle East is kind of the same that it's been for centuries um you know I mean that's one example of something that hasn't changed but of course there's things that have definitely changed with technology in the times um but I think that it was you know it was basically something you would mix at home in the earlier yeah or or in your cave or whatever. I mean, it was definitely do it yourself and make it or, you know, the high priest would make it. Um, I don't yeah. know, every culture didn't necessarily have access to makeup for everyone. Like I think Egypt was sort of a, a special time. Uh -huh. um, there's also a correlation between women wearing makeup and the power that they have. And in Egypt, women could like own land and they had a little bit more freedom. And so when you see that throughout history, you see, you know, more access. Um, otherwise, you know, men could wear it, especially like, you know, in ceremony. I think pre-20th pre century, there's, there's a real, like, if you look at the huge overview of makeup, there's this extreme, the acceptance of it and an extreme non-acceptance of mm -hmm. it. It's very much between, um, between pre-Christian days and, and early Christianity. Um, and then, you know, women weren't allowed to wear anything at all. And then it be and the Renaissance became more acceptable. Um, and it really, it, these huge pendulum swings about what, when, when it was acceptable and when it wasn't acceptable. Um, because for, I believe, I read something really interesting that in the pre-Christian days, they wanted um, to distance themselves from paganism where beauty was celebrated and considered a gift from God and um, cleanliness was considered good. And then, and then very early Christians really wanted to distance themselves from that. And, you know, from cleanliness and beauty and all those things. And then beauty was, and then beauty was considered a gift from God. And then it was okay. So it's like so these big, you know, like I said, big pendulum swings between the two. Um, and it always was very closely intertwined with religion and, you know, how, how much power women had at any given time in history as well. 
Right. Well, there, there was also that idea of like deception, right? And women right, and being the deceivers and like fooling the men and like absolutely. the evilness of, of yes. you know, of some lipstick. Right. <laughs> right. Or, you know, how dare you want to change what God created, which is something we still hear today, actually, um, mm-hmm. by, by changing it even through makeup. Um, and also, like you said, deceiving the sumptuary laws and things like that. Uh, you know, the, the Puritans, you know, it's just this, I love seeing those swings back and forth that we even see in the decades now of the 20th century. Right. I mean, I mean, this, this actually what you've been saying, it, it brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you guys about sort of makeup and notions of morality, because you've been touching on that a lot. And you've been pointing out that in certain historical and cultural contexts, and for certain population segments, the use of makeup has been morally or even legally off limits. I mean, we can we can speak about uh, we can speak about uh, uh, times in history, certain periods in history, early Christianity, as you as you as you already mentioned, uh, but also right now. I mean, if you if you go around the world, I'm sure you'll find a lot of places where uh, where where it's uh, considered less acceptable, and also certain population segments. Meaning, I mean, you've been talking a lot about uh, uh, makeup and women, but then again, the question asks, uh, the question poses itself about sort of the co- connection between makeup and gender, right? I mean, if you're a man, right, in at least in our societies, uh, in order to reinforce your masculinity or in order to preserve your masculinity, you're not supposed to wear makeup. So it somehow it makes you less of a man, uh, I suppose, if you if you if you wear makeup, right? And in other contexts, it's almost the opposite, and persons not using makeup can find themselves stigmatized or marginalized. Marginalized, right? So, uh, why do you think that makeup and morality uh, make for such a volatile combination? I mean, what is it that 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 connects these two things to each other? I think it has to do with visibility and freedom. You know, mm-hmm. um, makeup—it's like it's like the you know the male birds with their big feathers and the more colorful. You know, it's it's a it's a presentation. You're like you're not hiding if you're wearing makeup. Yeah. You know, if you're, I mean, if you're doing like a big look or something really fabulous, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a statement and it's, um, there's a lot of power in that and freedom in that. And I think, you know, power is always threatening to, to some people. Um, and also like, I'm sorry, Jess. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. And also through history, um, you know, women have always been considered, I mean, often I should say not in every time, but they, they're usually considered they're, they're a weaker sex and they're just there for their beauty. So even today, you know, we, some men don't want to be considered feminine and they view that as a weakness. And I'm really, I think it's really exciting to see, at least in New York, and I, I realize we're kind of in a rarefied bubble here to a certain extent. Um, but I think in major cities, I'll go so far to say like, it's really exciting to see men leaning more into it or and wearing makeup more in public. Like I, even in the past year, I've seen so many more like younger men um, wearing makeup in public. And I think that's really, really great. And so, uh, would you say, Michelle, would you say then that we're actually, uh, could we be witnessing a time where the sort of intrinsic connection between makeup and femininity and no makeup and masculinity, on the other hand, do you think that's breaking down? Do you think that makeup is no longer going to be considered as something that makes you automatically feminine or not? Yeah, I think we are actually. I think that's what you, one of the good things that's come out of social media um, and YouTube and all those things because we've seen these, you know, male influencers wearing makeup and and leaning into it and showing that men can wear makeup and, and look good and be just as powerful. So I definitely feel like with social media, it, we are definitely seeing a shift, at least for, towards younger men, especially younger men, um, 
kind of embracing makeup and seeing that it doesn't necessarily have to be and I mean or bad in know? general like heteronormative gender roles are breaking down all over the yeah, place I was gonna say that um, too. I'm saying male and female very in a very binary way yeah it's just I think that like it's just become more acceptable to be more fluid in everything whether that's the yeah. way you dress or, you know, like the, you know, people aren't necessarily like, oh, I have to go to the woman's section or the men's section. It's, it's all kind yeah. of, at least, you know, we see it in New York and again, it could be a bubble, but it's a start. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of just in general, the way it's going to go. But, you know, I, I mean, I would love that to be forever, but there have definitely been times like in the nineties, there was a big like grunge rock kind of push for like men's makeup, like Urban Decay did yeah. a whole thing for like men's makeup and like Dennis Rodman and like Chris Cornell. And like, there were all these like rock stores who wore like nail polish and eyeliner. I'm still a huge fan of that. Um, <laughs> I love that look, but there were a lot of men embracing like hard kind of sloppy, grungy, sexy, worn in makeups. And so, I mean, I was thinking that was going to stay and then it kind of disappeared. Yeah. So it's hard to say if it's forever, but I mean, I think in terms of like the pendulum swing long-term. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're, we're, we're getting to a place where like you can do what you want and be who you want and represent the way you want. And um, that's never a bad thing. That's reassuring. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's good to hear. Um, uh, you've been, uh, you guys have been mentioning uh, uh, the, already you've been touching on the con connection between makeup and entertainment. You've been talking about Michelle, you've been mentioning influencers and, uh, and Jessica, you've been talking about nineties uh, uh, figures like uh, Dennis Rodman and uh, Chris Cornell. And uh, th uh, that brings me uh, actually to a question that I wanted to ask about the connection uh, between makeup and entertainment, because the two have gone hand in hand for a long time. Uh, many global makeup trends were introduced uh, thanks to popular forms of entertainment from the extremely influential ballet russe at the beginning of the 20th century to Hollywood icons and all the way to today's uh, social media influencers. So what are your thoughts on the intertwined histories of makeup and entertainment? I mean, mm -hmm. I think because it goes back as far as, you know, the the I can't think of the right word, but back in the Middle Ages, when the the pageants would come through little towns, oh, and yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like the only time it was acceptable to wear makeup. Basically, is if you were on stage doing a a morality play. Basically, so I think it's it's really interesting to see how that connection has always gone far and has gone that far back. And I think it's always about it comes down to then emulating people and emulating what you and want to be. Maybe it's a little bit of fantasy, right? Like maybe yeah. it's, um, you know, that aspirational, you know, wanting to be, wanting to have, wanting to, to transform again, like the power of, you know, media and um, Hollywood. And I mean, Hollywood had a huge, I mean, we did a whole, almost a whole entire class on it, but like a huge influence on um, makeup becoming accessible to everybody and making it uh, normal for regular women to wear makeup, you know, because before that it was pretty much like Michelle was saying, like performers and ladies of the night. I mean, you just didn't really wear it. Um, and then, you know, Hollywood came along and kind of normalized makeup, which they needed for film and, and television. But then, you know, it became a glamorous thing. It became something that every woman wanted to have. Yeah. And since you can't necessarily be a movie star, at least you could look like a movie star. And right. I feel like that's sort of still, you know, that's still the social media. Still yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about, yeah, emulating someone that you want, even if it's 
an influencer or a make a movie star or a model or whatever it is. I think I think it is about the fantasy of being like, if I buy this lipstick, um, I will look like Greta Garbo or I, you know, Charlie's Theron or someone like that. Right. Um, I think it's 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 always what it comes down to is um the and maybe you know, you can't have that $40,000 handbag, but you can buy that $30 lipstick. Absolutely. Right. Accessible yeah. in a right. way. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, that actually um, also, I think, uh, goes away towards uh, showing us what actually changed about makeup in the 20th century as opposed to before the 20th century. Because you guys were talking about, for instance, uh, medieval pageants and things like that, where people might have had some kind of exposure uh, to makeup, but never on the mass scale uh, that they had in the 20th century. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how uh, developments in the 20th century? I mean, uh, not just uh, in terms of entertainment, but also in terms of industrialization and, uh, and science, you know, how did they change uh, the history of makeup? And why is the 20th century such a big break or such a, such a, such a, such a big turning point in the history of makeup? I mean, it's, it's so many things happening at the same time. <laughs> it, it, it's media, like we said, it's the technology available. It's the industrial revolution of people having more spare time and not having to toil in the field, basically. Um, it's women's rights. And then you have World War I happening at the beginning, at, which is aligning with the women's rights movement. And then so they have the technology, they take some of the technology from World War I and put that towards makeup. And then it just like, it was just this huge confluence and then media is getting more and more popular. Travel is getting easier. So people can see these images. There are more magazines that are being printed so they can see them, um, what's happening in other countries. And it was just this, when you when I read this question, I was like, whoa, it was just so much <laughs> a big question. time. Um, and it made me think of something I had read in a book recently that is kind of related, but it was someone, someone wrote something that said, basically, if you dropped an alien on earth in the year 1300 and the year 1800, things wouldn't be that much different. People were still working in the fields. They were still, you know, there was a very agrarian society. But then if you, if you fast forward a hundred years or 150 years to 1950, like think of the change in, the, in that amount of time. So I yeah. think, you know, I mean, think about, you know, and then the changes in makeup in that time too. So I think we have to look at it again as like this whole picture thing. And there really was that huge confluence of all of these factors happening at the beginning of the 20th century that allowed I mean, it to become more popular. Even, even now, you know, there's, it's interesting to see how technology, I mean, like I look around sometimes and I'm like, oh, this is the future. You know, we have like computers in the palms of our hands. And my husband is actually staying at a hotel right now that has like a, literally a robot that brings you like a towel like the robot gets on the elevator and like brings you something. It's like wild, stuff. you know, and I, and I'm like, oh my God, the future is now, like the future is here. And, you know, like, I mean, you don't see it a lot in beauty makeup, but like 3d printing has yeah. really yeah. changed the face of like special effects. Like you don't necessarily need to life cast somebody and like stick them in all this plaster. You could like 3d print their face, right. which is like so much faster and less frustrating for an actor and less time consuming. And, you know, it's not super accessible on the level that everyone has, that that ability yet but it's coming you know and and there's also i mean i've talked about this with you both like at various times but i i also wonder you know about this homogenization of makeup globally like it's it's almost it's this weird thing where like now that we can all see each other all around the world um 
there might be this, I think it's like this pressure to all look the same, you know, because when you look at like the Instagram makeups and the things that are becoming popular and everyone's like, you know, you can have all these women of like different skin tones and ethnicities and have them all look virtually the same. It's kind of like this weird, yeah, you know, yeah. every ethnicity, no ethnicity, like very makeup, very specific shapes. And, you know, it brings me to the idea, like when we were young in the nineties, you know, there was this there was this like uh, experimentation with makeup that was encouraged, you know, like people were coming out with like really weird colors and it was like the future was coming and, and everything was like metallic and synthetic and glittery and like interesting and, and it, no rules. It was like, anything goes everywhere. But now there's so many tutorials and there's so many people being like, well, this is the placement for this. And you have to have 17 yeah. products <laughs> and it, the contour goes here and the, you know, the boop highlighter goes there. And it's like, but everyone's starting to look the same. And I, and I, I can't say that I love it, but it's an interesting, it's almost like when you mix all the colors together and you get gray. And right. I feel like we're like in that place right now with makeup where there's this pressure for marketing to like sell all these things to everybody and it's just making gray. <laughs> That's really interesting because I mean, in some cases, uh, uh, I don't know if you feel, uh, uh, do you feel that the same thing is happening in fashion? Because for instance, when I look at fashion, mm -hmm. I see uh, I see a lot of influence from a lot of different world cultures, et cetera, et cetera. So sort of something, uh, the diversity of uh, the, the available fashions around the world goes into keeping the, the industry vibrant, right? Uh, and, but you don't feel that the same thing is happening with makeup. Um, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I was, I think there's this interesting dichotomy between makeup and that I think what you said, Jessica, is super true in terms of like social media and that world. But then there's this, there's this other side of things where it's like people are really leaning into like the creative side of it. So it's mm -hmm. like you have, you know, the, the people, the, the, the group that is, you know, super homogenized and doing like the, you know, kind of the paint by number makeup. And then there's this other this other type of makeup that is just like super creative and, you know, like putting blue sh eyeshadow on their forehead and doing whatever they want. Um, because it's just, because, you know, balls to the walls, like who cares anymore? You know? I hope so. I hope, I hope the kids are at home experimenting. I really, I, I really hope so. Yeah. I feel like they're, I feel like I see that sometimes on the street, you know, and I'll be okay. like, yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. which is funny because my, my personal aesthetic is very, you know, very classic and natural but when I see other people I'm like yeah put that blue eyeshadow on your forehead I love it um, <laughs> but I think the I think the so I think because there's so much creativity out there and it's so much more accessible I feel like mm -hmm. the other side of that and they're you know they're existing at the same time and near each other is that there is this extreme beauty that is much more okay Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And I mean, you, you, uh, you're talking about this, uh, this kind of um, standardization on, in a way that it, that comes with the, with the sort of emergence of this immense uh, industry, this multi-billion makeup industry, and uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, the, the desire to market and sell certain kinds of products. So, so a kind of uh, taking makeup in a, in a, in a, predetermined, let's say, direction that serves a certain purpose. And that brings me actually to uh, to something that I wanted to ask you guys about. And you also touched earlier, Michelle, you were, you were talking about the role of makeup, sort of how makeup was developed after World War One, uh, thanks to thanks to new technologies that were that were actually that came into play uh, during the war. Uh, uh, and so I, I wanted to tie it all up into a question uh, about makeup and political history, because uh, 
uh, I've heard you, both of you, talk about um, the important role that makeup has played in political history, uh, ranging from wars such as World War II uh, to modern political campaigns, where it has been shown that assistance by makeup professionals has a significant impact on chances of election. So I was asking, I, I was going to ask you to elaborate a little bit on the on the political history of makeup and specifically on the deployment of makeup to achieve political aims. Um, I mean, I think that's such a good question. I think actually one of my, just a little tidbit that I found out about this was in the 17, I believe it was the early 1700s, 1740s, sometimes in the 1700s, when patches were popular, women would patch on either side of their face to distinguish which which party they were in favor of. So Whigs on one side, Tories on the other, this was in England, or if you were neutral, you'd, you'd patch on both sides. So I think that's just a great tidbit of like, and, and when they were getting married, that one woman had it in her in her prenup that she was allowed to patch on whatever side she wanted, regardless <laughs> of her husband thought, which I think is well, amazing. You know, um, it's, it's kind of funny because like this year for the first time ever, I watched like the Republican convention. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I feel, you know, just because I was like, well, I'm home and uh, we're doing this. So, yeah, I watched it and, and it was really fascinating. Something that we all kind of commented on was like all the women, it looked like they all hired the same makeup artist. Like they all had the same look, you know, right down to like the pink lip gloss and the same kind of eyeshadow. And, and it's like, in a way, we're still kind of doing that today, you yeah. know? Um, I feel like that's kind of a representation of like what they were doing with those patches. So you it's feel like, you feel that makeup is becoming it becomes some kind of political uniform almost. Right, it can yeah. be. Well, and I mean, also, oh, go ahead. It's um even for men, like you know, you, they want to appear the most the most attractive and the most powerful, the most virile. Um, and I think there's that famous story about Kennedy versus Nixon about yeah, how I was just going to say that yeah. exactly Nixon didn't want to go on on screen next to Kennedy because he knew Kennedy was so much better looking um, and so much more attractive and just appealing, <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, men feel it too. And it's, it's a real thing. And I, there's, I'm sorry to keep on throwing these tidbits, but I think they're so interesting was the story of Lincoln, um, Abraham Lincoln getting a letter from a little girl saying you should grow a beard because you're not that attractive and, oh, and, and you'll be, you'll be more handsome and women will tell their, their husbands to vote for, for you. Mm. So it goes back that far. I mean, um, really it, this is like an unrelated story, but kind of related. I, I went back when I used to work in retail, I remember this woman who came in and she was, she was a scientist and her, her area of expertise was like bees and why it was so important to save them. And, you know, she, um, she never wore makeup, you know, she was all about work and just not like not fussy about anything like that. But the thing was, she was really, really fair and she, you really couldn't see her eyebrows. And mm -hmm. so when she was talking in these big rooms and on camera, like I, like my immediate thought was like, oh my God, your eyebrows are disappearing and people <laughs> can't read your facial expressions. Like it's yeah. actually a very basic human, like face-to-face -face thing that happens. Like, you know, and I was kind of explaining to her, I was like, you know, I, like this doesn't diminish your work with the bees or the importance of your messaging. I was like, but I think if we give you like a little bit of eyebrows, people will actually hear your messages a little bit more because they'll be able to see like your facial expressions and the passion about the things that you talk about. Um, you know, there, there, there is like a correlation, even as crazy as that sounds to like messaging and being able to receive that messaging. Um, it's not always it's as relatable. As, 
yeah, being yeah. relatable, being, um, you know, obviously like we want our political candidates to not be a hundred years old, even though we keep like electing people who are a hundred years old. So like <laughs> they try to make them look less a hundred years old. Um, that's the power of makeup, right? Uh, right. Yeah, it's all about relatability. There's uh, the story. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who it was. It was, I want to say it was Clinton or Gore, but I don't know if that's right. But it was one of the candidates like didn't sweat. He never sweat. And his people, and he would go into these factories with these blue collar workers and he wouldn't be sweating. And they literally would like spray his shirts to make it look like he was sweating. (laughs) Wow. Um, that story so clearly it's yeah it's all about relatability and perception perception perception. yeah even if you're not sweating you need to look like you are um Mm. absolutely i mean that the 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 question about perception the question about the sort of uh, transformation into something that other people will recognize as something that is that is near to them or as something that has meaning right. for them. Mm-hmm. That, that is also something that uh, kind of helped uh, make up for women in general become more acceptable uh, during World War II, right? Because during that time, it was, uh, could, you, could, you, could, you, could you tell me a little bit about that? Because I think it was, it, it was a question of boosting morale. Or- yeah, super. Take it away, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I've done some deep dives into this. It was <laughs> it was this very interesting dichotomy of women women need to boost more exactly they need to stay beautiful to boost morale because it's up to you to keep the home front going and but keep, still keep looking good and um and but at the same time you weren't allowed to look like you tried too hard. So it's uh-huh. that standard so we need you to look well put together take care of the kids make sure your house looks good but huh. and also make sure that you look beautiful at the same time keep those fences mended as they say and but also like don't look like you're trying too hard because that's that's not good either um i feel like it's also kind of a little bit about control right like yeah absolutely um you know women were, were basically shamed for if their husbands like would come home and and not remember the woman that he married, you know, like forget that you're like in the middle of a war and like now have a factory job and are doing the regular work, you know. Um, I think it's it was also a way to sort of keep women in their place even though they were getting all these other freedoms. It's like so weird and like, yeah. but at the same time, I know that lipstick makes me feel better. So right. I can say that, oh God, the oppression. But on the <laughs> other hand, there is something about like, I might, I might be in the middle of a war, but like this lipstick makes me feel glamorous while I'm working at the factory. So I, right. I you know, it's both, it's both yeah. of those things. Yeah. It's a really interesting that that particular period of time is this very fascinating confluence of all of these things happening at the same time. Um, and, you know, look good, but not too good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think to your point um, about, about, you know, politics and things like that, like, the war department didn't put cosmetics on the restricted industries list. Uh-huh. That's how important they thought it was to the war effort here at home in the, in the U S which I think is really fascinating that even the war department had, you know, could see like how important that was, um, right. which is pretty fascinating. And also something else I read was that Hitler supposedly hated red lipstick. He hated makeup in general, but in particular, he hated red lipstick. He was so, such a jerk, you know, right? <laughs> such an um, so way to be, you know, to show on your face that you were, you know, anti-Hitler, anti-Nazi was to wear red lipstick. Mm. Um, so 
I, I was like doing that. a, I was, I was doing a, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's slightly um, uh, unrelated, but I was, do, I was doing an interview recently with somebody who had grown up in Germany during World War II, spent their childhood there, and remembered after, shortly after World War II, going to a, going to a concert, a classical music concert, and the woman sitting next to him uh, was smelled of garlic, and he remembered that impression. And many, many, many years later, he, he discovered that actually. Uh, uh, it was a form of resistance because the Nazis were actually saying, okay, and nobody, sh people shouldn't eat garlic or onions because th this is not German. This is something that the, that the sort of lesser peoples eat. So, yeah, so like actually eating, ethnic. eating garlic and smelling wow. of garlic could be, could be a form of resistance. Wow. Um, um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more uh, uh, about sort of the, the 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 20th century and 21st century makeup industry. Uh, the the first uh, the first question that I wanted to ask about that was uh, uh, concerning concerning sort of the ethics of the industry because like so many other industries, the modern makeup industry faces troubling ethical questions which range from animal testing to conditions of labor, uh, from marketing strategies to policies of pricing uh, as someone who wants to use makeup as consciously and responsibly as possible today what should i be looking out for i mean are there some basic guidelines for the ethical use of makeup in the 21st century uh, it, it, this one's tough because it really comes down to personal choice yeah um you know i mean there are more so now than ever there's more options so if you are vegan and you want your makeup to be vegan, there are options for you. Um, you know, and actually it's getting, it used to have to, it used to be that you'd sort of have to choose between durability, wearability, and, you know, um, and, and basically whether it was vegan or not or natural or not. Um, and now you don't necessarily have to, there's like a lot of companies that make really great, um, you know, animal cruelty free lines. Um, but I think that the, the toughest part as a consumer, I think now is everybody's marketing like clean beauty. Like right. you can't see my air quotes, but air quotes, clean beauty, um, which is kind of dangerous because what is clean beauty and what, what is natural, you know, like these are lines and words you hear a lot because everybody, of course, everybody wants clean, natural, you know, things that aren't going to hurt them, but there's a lot of misinformation about what is harmful or what is cancer causing or what is you know, good or bad for you. And I think, you know, really the consumer has to be a little bit smart and research ingredients and figure out what their personal lines are, like what's acceptable for each individual. There are, um, there's a documentary I've been meaning to watch, which I still haven't watched. I think it's called Toxic Beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just yeah. about like what's in the makeup and what what is harmful over time. And, but again, you know, I mean, I joke all the time, like I love a paraben, like um, <laughs> some things are just preservatives and some things keep, like, I have to say, like, I had this makeup line. I won't say what, cause we're not here to do that. But um, I like depotted the whole thing. I had it in my kit. It was like a natural makeup line. And then we hit COVID times and I didn't get to use any of it for a year. And it all went bad, <laughs> like really bad, rancid bad. And it's probably because it didn't have any stabilizers in it. Um, you know, and so for me professionally, that isn't something I would keep in my kit. Like, I don't even think it made it three months or two months, you know? Um, so it's just about the individual and what, you know, and of course, like if I have a client that's like, I only want X, Y, Z, then I'm going to cater to that. And there are ways to do that, but it, it's really, it's really personal. 
Uh, Michelle, did you have a feeling about that too? Oh yeah, I'm right on board with you there. Um, yeah, it is, it's this weird thing of like, it's easier quote air quotes because everything's labeled and there's there are so many more options for vegan and cruelty-free and that is a little more black and white, but yeah, you get into like the clean beauty aspect of things and it gets really hazy very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So I think if you are, if that is important to you and you want to do that, you do have to be willing to do your research and kind of do a deeper dive to make sure that what they're using really is clean. You kind of need to know your chemistry. Like you need to know your chemistry. And like, and like Jessica said, like it's, there are things that should be in or do help with makeup to keep it better long to not go bad so it's really you just have to be really careful and not fall for the marketing of things right so and i mean also someone once told me that if you're buying from the major brands anything l'oreal anything lvmh anything owned by a huge parent company they make most of that makeup in the same few factories in the world yeah like there's, there's two or three factories is my understanding there's right. two like in, in germany that make pencils Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think that you're getting, if you're buying from Neutrogena, let's say, and you think that that eye pencil that you're getting is that much different than Mac, let's say, you're probably, it's probably not. It may not be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Yeah. Price point isn't indicative of a superior product right. Um, right. at all. And, and that's kind of where it comes down to like hiring a trained professional makeup artist you know, um, who can guide you through that. I mean, not only do we do makeup, but we work with so much product. Like you could hire a makeup artist to help you shop or to help you demystify like what's the difference between this or this or go through a makeup bag and help you figure out like what is it what is important to spend my money on and what isn't like you know because the the bottom line is like some things are the same and some things aren't and it's really just about knowing the more you use product the more you know like we don't pay attention to packaging at all because the packaging to us doesn't matter a lick yes. it's really about going into the store putting it on your skin seeing it how it wears you know um when things are like all the rage, I'll go into the Sephora and try them. And I can tell you right away, regardless of whether that product is $5 or $50, whether it's going to last, whether it's going to look good. Like I can just tell by the way it sits on the back of my hand, right? if that product was cheaply made or if that product has some nice ingredients in it, the way it blends, the way it moves, mm. the way it absorbs, like, but it's just, it's from having done it so long, you know, Abs you're absolutely, you're, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, uh, that's actually a big part of uh, what makes the, uh, what makes makeup in the 20th and 21st century so different is not just the industrialization of the production, but it's also the professionalization, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, 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 the coming into existence of, uh, of new professions, such as the, such as the makeup artist, which, uh, yeah. uh, which you both are. So um, uh, one, th uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you about that was concerning the situation right now, because as makeup professionals today, uh, it must be a tough time uh, to, <laughs> to, 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 to try to work uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. So I wanted to ask you about the effects of the pandemic on your industry, but not so much regarding production, et cetera, mm -hmm. but, 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 but in terms of being a professional in the industry, what is it like uh, to be a makeup artist in pandemic times? And do you think that this experience has any important lessons and takeaways uh, for the industry as a whole and for the individuals who work in it? Yes. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, for me, God, there were so many takeaways just as a human being. Um, you know, I worked pretty hard and steady for a very long time without much break. 
And then I found myself unemployed for eight months because there was just no, like, it was just not happening. Like we're in, like to do makeup, you have to look at someone's face pretty close to them um, without a mask on, you know, they, they're not wearing a mask. We obviously are wearing lots and lots of PPE, but um, you know, so I had a lot of realizations just about work. And I mean, something that I was hoping would come out of all of this, which I'm unfortunately I'm not really seeing was just more human care, you know, maybe like our days don't need to be 19 hours long. Like maybe we could work eight or 10 or 12. Like I kind of wanted to see more humane humanity. I wanted to see more humanity come out of this. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, as we think, as things normalize, you know, it's productions right back to work and everyone's like, oh, we're so lucky to be working. Oh, we're so lucky. But, you know, my takeaway was we're not lucky to be working. Like we choose to work. It's, it's a joy. I love my job, but you know, there's also, there need, we need that balance. Like, my God, we need work-life balance. We need time for our families and time for the other things and the creativity to flow and, you know, all of that. I mean, the other thing that I realized too is like makeup is so much more than just about the application. You know, it's like a sacred space. It's a connection. Um, and I was talking a little bit before we started this podcast about the joylessness of working in the pandemic. And I, and I feel like it's because you know, I'm wearing two masks and a face shield, which is pretty required. Um, I do a lot of production work and I feel like I'm working through a fishbowl and I can't really hear what my, you know, my, the actor in my chair is saying or the client and they can't really hear me. And, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm thinking about all the steps I need to take to like clean everything and sanitize everything and make sure it's like COVID safe. And so the, the room and like your creative brain for like the spontaneity is really missing because you're constantly like, okay, then I have to sharpen this pencil and then I have to dip it in alcohol. Then I have to wipe it down and then I have to like break it off and then I have to like sharpen it again. And then I'm going to put it on and then I'm going to like put it in the dirty bit. Like the, just the number of steps and then, and the, the complexity, it's like, we became like admin yeah. <laughs> people, um, yeah. you know, instead of like artists. And that was a really, it's really tough. I mean, it's been really, really hard for me. Um, I don't enjoy, <laughs> I don't enjoy it. Um, it was really, yeah, it's still kind of hard, but I, but the silver lining is I realized the things that I'm missing more than anything is not necessarily like the work, but the collaboration. I'm mm -hmm. really missing you know, the, the beauty of creativity, the freedom of creativity, like all the things that I'm craving were like get together and just like make some weird, crazy art. You know, I did like one virtual photo shoot with one of my favorite photographers who now lives in Germany. Um, and I, and I just did makeup on myself and it was like this really free creative, whatever I want. It kind of reminded me of like Cindy Sherman's work. It was just like this wild, like I painted my teeth black and like did this like weird, I was in a weird place. Like it's pandemic times. Um, but we created this like really weird, ugly, uncomfortable, but beautiful art. And I was like, yes, that's, that's what I want to do. Right. <laughs> if I can monetize whatever that is. Um, but there's beauty in that. There's beauty in the uncomfortable and the growing and the whatever. But yeah, like in general, the day-to-day -day work has been very difficult. Right. It's been, it's been very challenging. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been very challenging emotionally and physically and in, in every kind of way, because when you have a, I mean, when you're not working, it, it makes you question your self-worth for sure. Um, I've definitely had moments where I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> In a larger what does life mean? <laughs> what does life mean, basically? Should I even be trying to do this anymore? Um, and it, it's been very challenging uh, when the stakes are so high. 
when you know yeah. that people are dying, um, when there are people, you know, doctors and nurses and support people working 20 hour days for months in a row. It's, it's, yeah, it makes you question, um, your worth in general. Um, but I think, I think it's important to just remember that life goes on and that we all need beauty. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, uh, one thing that I wanted to sort of uh, uh, add, uh, add as a sort of add-on question there, though, is um, do you feel that uh, in this uh, process that uh, you've both described as an incredibly hard process, do you think that there was something, uh, there was enough, let's say, support from your professional environment or the industry or the union or how does it work? I mean, do, do, you, think that, do you think that going forward from here, there is, a, there is something to be learned about how sort of makeup professionals should, uh, so, sort of the, the, the kind of environment, the kind of uh, uh, collaboration, the kind of help structure that, that they could create for each other? I, I know that my experience is probably, it's good that actually Michelle and I are both here to answer this question because I think this is like a really, it's a really good question about just the arts and support in general. And I will say that like, because I am a union makeup artist and I'm also like full disclosure, the head of membership for the union at the moment, I'm the membership director and I'm really passionate about unions and what they can do and the power of, you know, us together. Um, I feel like the union really supported like really supported the artists um, during this time because you know there were a lot of resources that people didn't know how to access and the union really like helped connect people to the loans that were available and the actors fund and um, you know there were just like a lot of resources that I wouldn't have had if I'd been out in the world just as a regular freelancer. Um, I know that a lot of people were able to like pay their bills and feed their kids because of the union support that they had. Um, and it really made a huge difference. It really made a huge difference. I know that we had, like, it was still difficult to um, navigate the unemployment, but I know that there was help for us. There were like resources we had if we were having trouble, whereas a lot of my friends who were not union, like they were kind of just floating in space and really um, didn't have anybody to call or like to ask for help or to navigate it. Cause it's all very confusing. Yeah. Um, right. You know, it didn't fix it, but it, I definitely felt really lucky to at least, and also with just the guidelines for going back to work, you know, they wrote up, they wrote up contracts that were not necessarily binding, but it was like, this is how we're going to go back to work when we do it. This is how it's going to look. This is what it should be. You know, and there were people working tireless, tirelessly behind the scenes to like put that together and to create some sort of safety net and some sort of structure so that when we did go back to work on set, um, there were very clear guidelines for us. And I know that that also wasn't really happening in fashion. I was seeing a lot of random things and people being very cavalier and there was no, no one to be accountable to. And, you know, with unions, it was like, it was the SAG union, which is for the actors. It was our union. It was the LA union. Um, they kind of all got together and said, no, like when you go back to work, like this is what it's gotta be. I mean, we were tested every other day. We had PPE provided for us. We had, you know, there was just like a lot put into place so that we could work safely or as safe as we could. I mean, I worked for a show for eight months and knock on wood, but we made it through like nobody Amazing. in my department, you know, had um, came into contact. Now that's not always the case, but we really, I really felt pretty much day to day safer than I would have if I was out there on my own. Um, but yeah, Michelle, yeah, I know that that's, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to have my side of it too. It's um, yeah, no, I've looked 
I looked longingly at a union like a kid with their nose pressed to the glass. Um, and it's been nice to see. I mean, I'm really glad to hear that the union was was there doing that for you. I think I think if anything, this is all proven at how important unions are. And that's what it's for, right? Right, yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean these these kinds of things that we uh, sort of maybe even kind of take for granted, or we don't we 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 don't really uh, see the necessity for them until the day comes. Right? Mm -hmm. right. I mean, it's been it's been interesting to see. You know, like on Facebook, there was a, a Facebook group for you know makeup artists just trying to help each other out. Um, makeup mm -hmm. and hair people, you know, how to navigate the unemployment system together. Um, so yeah. it's been really great to see that happen. And there's been a lot of, of help with people just trying to help each other. And, you know, that's right. been really great to see. It hasn't been in an organized way, of course, like, like Jessica's been talking about, but that has been happening. And that's been really, really lovely to see people for the most part, really just wanting to, to support each other and, and help each other as best they can. Cause it's a very, it's a very complicated, um, unnecessarily complicated, confusing system. Right. And I mean, I think if there is one overarching lesson to be learned from something like this, then it's the value of solidarity in a way. So, mm -hmm. so, so, so I, 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 I can hear that from, from, from what both of you are saying. Uh, so uh, Jessica, Michelle, uh, thank you so much for this conversation, uh, which I appreciated not just for your fascinating insights into the world of makeup, but also for showing us that critical thinking is not just some academic obsession, but a tangible, fruitful way for us to approach all aspects of life uh, from medieval philosophy to makeup, if you will forgive the lame alliteration. Uh, so thank you once again for sharing your thoughts with us. And I hope we can get together again in person soon, maybe as soon as the Paris Fashion Week is up and running again. Yes, please. Yes, <laughs> yes please. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I will say this one thing, though, you know, this, this pandemic has reminded me, you know, we always talk about the roaring 20s. We cover that in the class that we yeah. teach. Like that was right after the 1918 pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I never really put that the two and two together, but like, we're going to have some pretty roaring, like whatever <laughs> thousand year it is when this is really over. Party. So much lipstick, so much makeup, so much creativity, so <laughs> much parties. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm more to post-COVID life for many reasons. So much travel. Yeah. I'm already, I'm already looking forward to it. Oh, uh, so, so many hugs. <laughs> this, this brings us to the end uh, of uh, yet another episode of Paid Voices. Uh, if you, our listeners, would like to support the volunteer work that we're doing at our nonprofit institution, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking, you may consider becoming a member of our community. You can find more information on how to join Paid on our website. In the meantime, my name is David Silim Sayers. I was joined today by makeup artists Michelle Corsi and Jessica. Padilla, and I hope we have the chance to challenge you with another big podcast soon. Goodbye.